I got to tell you, this service has already spoken to my heart, and uh, I want to thank Tasha for being bold and sharing her testimony, and uh, also the worship team for preparing uh, my heart. Uh, even in the songs that we sang, uh, God is a miracle worker. Today is Faith Sunday, and we are going to be looking at a subject that you may never have heard about. I hadn't heard about the messianic miracles up until a few years ago when I was reading a book and then I checked out a number of different resources and found that uh, what the author had penned was true. Now, I've written a book about my experience with miracles and uh, in the coming weeks I'll offer it to you uh, if you want a copy uh, and uh, if you can't afford uh, the ten dollars uh, to pay for the the printing that's okay you just grab one anyway um, i was drawn to this topic as a young boy when my dad came home from work and shared a couple of miracles that he had experienced one that i talked about a couple weeks ago that began the work of faith in my own heart even before I was a follower of Christ. No doubt some of you listening today could use a touch of God. You need a work of God in your life. And if you don't, we all know family and friends that need a work of God. We simply can't control life and so, we need to reach out beyond ourselves in faith and allow God to work. Now, I want to say here, we can't manipulate God into simply doing what we want Him to do, as some preach. But I believe God wants to show Himself strong on our behalf. Today we get an exciting glimpse into the miracles of Jesus. I had never heard, like I said, about the messianic miracles until I started reading about the topic from rabbis, these writings that were written before Jesus' birth. So as we look into this this morning, and we take, uh, in a moment, we take a look at, our, at this first messianic miracle, I want to ask a couple questions before that. First of all, uh, what is a miracle? What is a miracle? Well, I, uh, before I looked up the dictionary definition for a miracle, I wanted to write my own definition. So this is my uh, feeble attempt. I wrote... A miracle is simply the divine work of God to change the normal course of events. A dictionary definition that I read said this, it is an unexpected, pleasant surprise. Friends, I want to tell you that there isn't a word in that sentence that is right. It's not unexpected. 
in faith we look forward to God doing His work. And we shouldn't be surprised when He does it. And pleasant? Try reading the Old Testament, some of the miracles Jesus or God did, and you'll find that they weren't always pleasant to the receiver. I don't believe this dictionary definition, man's definition for miracles. I believe that God works on our behalf after we've called out to Him in faith, trusting that He will do something, and then, according to His will, He acts. Now, you can be assured that every time God works, He has a purpose. Every time. Jesus never did one miracle to dazzle or impress people. Not once. In fact, if you look at Jesus' miracles, every one of them had a purpose. Sometimes it was simply to glorify His Father. At other times, He did a miracle to help seekers believe or believers to grow in their faith. Sometimes a miracle had a lesson behind it. And sometimes the real miracle was the miracle behind the miracle. One of my favorite miracles that Jesus did was where he told Peter to go out fishing. And he said, Peter, you're going to throw your line in the water, and the first fish you catch when you pull it up, you're going to open its mouth, and there'll be a coin in its mouth. And that coin I want you to take to pay our temple tax. Well, that's a pretty good miracle. But you know what the real miracle is? The miracle behind the miracle? That that coin in the fish's mouth to drachma was the exact amount it took to pay Jesus and Peter's temple tax. Wow. I keep looking for the rare fish that I catch that there would be a coin in his mouth to pay for my taxes. <laughs> That'd have to be a fish with an awfully big mouth. One of Christ's followers named Apollos debated with others that Jesus was the Messiah. In Acts 18, verse 28, it says, For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, where, where it says that he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents, you know what that means? It means that Apollos laid a beat down on them. They had 
nothing that they could say that would come back to challenge what Apollos had said. So I asked myself when I was reading this verse, I often think, what's behind this verse? What, what's it saying? What, you know, for instance, what proof do you think Apollos used? What arguments did he use? Was it his resurrection? Was it his birth? Was it the numerous prophecies in the Old Testament written about Jesus that Jesus had no control over that he did, that he fulfilled? Or was it his miracles? At a conference I attended, Michael Card was the the keynote speaker, and he asked an interesting question. He said, have you ever noticed how unmiraculous most of the miracles were that Jesus did? How unmiraculous those miracles were. He went on to say, I'm not saying that the miracles in and of themselves were not awesome. What I mean specifically is the way Jesus performs them and what this tells us about him. And Michael Card went on to say, at the time when divine men were traveling about the country, astounding people with their miraculous powers, men like Simon Magnus in Acts 8, Jesus appears on the scene and does his best, does his best to point away from himself and to his Father. Jesus' general demeanor was always the point away from himself. Like in Matthew 26 and verse 53, when he hung on the cross, uh, and he said to his disciples, actually, he said this in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he went to the cross, he said to his disciples, don't you realize that I could ask my Father, that I could ask my Father for thousands of angels to protect us, and He would send them instantly. The emphasis is on His Father, that God would send them instantly. Do you know, when Jesus performed His miracles, He often asked or made a simple command, such as in Luke 6 where he said, stretch out your hand, or in Luke 7 where he just told a crippled man to get up. There's no razzle-dazzle, no showmanship. Jesus healed the centurion slave in Luke 7, and he wasn't even there. Wasn't even there. At the wedding at Cana, 
where he performed his first miracle and changed the water into wine. Most people at the wedding never knew a miracle had ever happened. As I started today, I asked, have you ever noticed that some miracles Jesus performed received far more reaction from the religious leaders and the people of his day? Four miracles Jesus performed were different from all the other miracles. You say, how were they different? Sometime before Jesus was even born, as I said earlier, the rabbis wrote down that the Messiah would come and he would be known by performing four miracles. Miracles that only the Messiah, that only God could do. Miracles, according to the rabbis, fell into two distinct categories. Those that anyone could do, empowered by God, and those that only God could do. For instance, Moses was empowered by God to turn a stick into a snake. Pretty awesome miracle. If it was left up to me, I'd turn all the snakes into sticks. <laughs> Most of you would too. Think about Elisha. Elisha did great miracles, but these weren't the messianic miracles. Elijah was par- uh, empowered by God to call fire down from heaven. That's a pretty awesome miracle. Have you ever called on God to do a miracle and then watched as he did it? I remember the summer of 1983. My memory's starting to slip a bit. Bonnie reminds me of that sometimes. But I can remember this as clear as day. We were on a mission trip with our young people. It was a three-week-long mission trip with uh, the Stratford and Elmira youth. Uh, and and uh, the first two weeks, uh, the first week was training. The second week, we uh, went up to a small community and worked for a week uh, serving the church and the people of the community. The third week was kind of a... Uh, regurgitate, let's look at and see what God's done, let's talk about it week. And that week was a, 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 a camping week in Algonquin Park. We know, I think before we even pulled into Algonquin Park, it started to rain. And it rained, and it rained, and it rained. Our tents were flooded, our sleeping bags were soggy like cereal. It was miserable. On the second or third day we were there, uh, my co-leader, Dale Losh, came to me and he said, Lenny, it's, I mean, if it, if it rains, like, if it's going to keep raining like this, we just got to go home. We got to call it short. We didn't even have a common area, a common dry area that we could get in. 
So Dale suggested this. He said, Lenny, you call your teens and I'll call my teens and we're going to gather uh, out in the rain and we're going to pray and we're going to ask God to stop the rain right now. And friends, I'm not lying when I tell you this. The sky was black with clouds. There was not one place in the whole sky that didn't have a cloud. I said, Dale, we're going to go out here right now. You're going to pray. You're going to pray. You're going to pray. And you're going to ask God to stop the rain right now. Yes. I was amazed. And I was, I was afraid. I thought, you know, I kind of shared this about a different miracle last week, but I, you'd think you'd learn your lesson. But I thought, what if, what if God doesn't answer us right now? What, what if it's just not His will? What, you know, all these questions. What, what will our teens think? Dale said, let's go. We were standing out there. I got a picture. Uh, somewhere I've got a picture of this. We're standing out there under umbrellas, but they weren't really helping. They were just getting your neighbor wet. You know what an umbrella does. And the rain was blowing in. And Dale said, we're going to join hands here, and we're going to ask God for the rain to stop now. Friends, we bowed our head. We prayed, and I tell you, we didn't pray three minutes. And when we opened our eyes, there was a far-off cloud in the sky moving away from us, and the rain had stopped. I'm not sharing that, that testimony for any credit for me, because I don't deserve any credit, God performed a miracle in front of us. However, the four miracles the Israelites believed only the Messiah could do were different. Remember, all Israel had been looking for their Savior. And each time, and you may not know this, but each time someone did something amazing, even amazing or they did a miracle, a delegation was sent out by the rabbi to see, is this the Messiah? And this delegation would report back. They did that with John the Baptist. John chapter 1. And every time they sent a delegation out, they were sad to report back, no, it, it's not the Messiah. And then Jesus of Nazareth appears on the scene. So let's look at these four messianic miracles. The first one we read in Mark chapter 1, verses 40 to 45. It's the healing of a leper. Now you may recall that Elisha had been instructed by God to tell the layman, Nep, uh, the layman Neper, the, the leper Naaman, to go and dip himself in the river Jordan. Second Kings chapter 5, maybe you want to read it this afternoon. 
But Elisha doesn't even go out of his house to meet Naaman. But he sends his servant with a simple message. Hey, Naaman, you want to be healed? Go down to the river Jordan and dip yourself in it seven times. Oh, Naaman was indignant. He was downright angry. He said to his servants, Don't we have enough good rivers where I'm from? Why would I go to that dirty slum river, Jordan, and dip myself? So he got on his horse and he started to ride away. And his servant stopped him and said, Hey, you know, Naaman, think about this. If he had asked you to do something really difficult, you probably wouldn't have wanted to do it. But he asked you to do something really simple and he told you that you would be healed. Maybe we should try it. Naaman turns around, goes down to the Jordan, dips himself seven times, is miraculously healed. So it wasn't the first time that a leper was healed, but Naaman wasn't the one who did the miracle. It's clear as you read this passage that God did the miracle. In fact, when Naaman shows back up at Elisha's home and says, hey, I want to give you a gift for doing this for me, Elisha refused to accept it, knowing that he hadn't accepted it, but his wicked servant Gehazi followed Naaman and asked for the reward. You know what happened to Gehazi? As soon as he showed back up, at Elisha's house, Elisha said, now you got the leprosy. Jesus was not supposed to touch this leper. In fact, according to Jewish law, anyone who touched a leper was unclean. Jesus didn't care about that. It was a man-made law. You know what? I, God help me here that I don't say something I shouldn't. But I've wondered over and over and over again with this whole pandemic thing. We can't greet one another with a holy kiss. We can't hug one another. We can't shake hands. Jesus touched the leper. What do you think about that, Rabbi? They didn't like it. He defied the culture of his day by simply performing the will and word of God. Now, why was this a messianic miracle? Because the, the Jewish people believed, they were taught, that leprosy came as a result of personal sin. That you had sinned, and the only person that can forgive sin is God. Therefore, the only person that can cure or heal a leper is God. It wasn't a stretch for them to believe this, because when Moses put leprosy on Aaron 
and Miriam, it was because of their sin. But Jesus conquers sin. Only the Messiah could heal a leper. And Jesus did it. He had power over this dreaded, humiliating, and contagious disease. I refuse to live in fear of the pandemic we're in. It has no power over Christians who believe that God is in control. Jesus also healed 10 lepers at another time in Luke, 7, uh, Luke 17. The second messianic miracle was casting out a mute demon. A mute demon. Let's read in Matthew, if you want to read with me. It's in Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 to 24. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and couldn't speak, was brought to Jesus. Now that's important information. Turn the page too quickly. Forgive me. He healed the man, so that he could both speak and see. The crowd was amazed and asked, Could it be that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah? Now, they didn't ask this question every miracle Jesus did. They didn't. Why was this a set-apart miracle? Well, it's because of what Luke tells us about this man, that he was a deaf-mute. He was deaf, and he couldn't speak. Why, why was that different? Because the rabbi believed that to cast out a demon, you had to first ask that demon his name. And when the demon told you his name, then you could pray calling out that demon by name. But with a deaf mute, he couldn't speak. He couldn't tell you the name of the demon. So only the Messiah could perform that miracle. This miracle was a major turning point in Jesus' ministry for those who followed him. As they were forced to consider if he was truly the Messiah, he now had done two of the four messianic miracles. Miracle three, the healing of a man born blind. John chapter 9. Let me read it for you. We read verses 1 to 3 and verses 6 to 7. 
As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? Now, they didn't ask, was it because of another reason besides sin? Because they had been taught in the synagogue that to be born blind was because of either sin in your own life or sin in your parents' life. Jesus said it was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so that the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the task assigned us by the one who has sent us. Jesus was saying to his disciples, God is going to do a work here at, that others are going to see. Verses 6 and 7. Then he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. He told him, Go. Wash yourself in the pool of Shalom. Shalom means scent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. Let me just read the next verse. It says, His neighbors and others who knew him as a blind beggar ask each other, Isn't this a man who was used to sit and beg? They couldn't believe it. He was seeing. In fact, there was such a ruckus from the crowd, the Pharisees called this man in. It's a great story. There's humor in it. I like it. And the, rabbi, the rabbis say to this man, you, you, can't, you can't say that this man healed you. Basically, that's what they said. How, 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 do you, you're, how can you prove that you're even the man that sat begging? And this man said, I thought you, you rabbi knew everything, and yet you don't know who healed me? And they kicked him out of the temple. There, there began at, at, this is the miracle, we're told, where the plot to kill Jesus starts to formulate. The rabbi said, never has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. The Pharisees couldn't get around it, they couldn't get over it, and they wouldn't accept it. And then we come to the fourth messianic miracle, it's found in Luke chapter 11, and I want to read all of these verses because they're so good. John 11, 33 down to 49, it says, when Jesus saw her weeping, this is Lazarus' sister. 
and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep, listen to this, a deep anger welled up within him. And he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him, he asked them. They told him, Lord, come and see. Then Jesus wept. The people who were standing nearby said, See how much he loved him? But some said, This man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry when he arrived at the tomb. I asked myself when I read this, what do you suppose Jesus was angry at? Was he angry at the people around him? I don't think so. You know what I think he was angry at? I think he was angry at our enemy. I think he was angry that Satan would have killed his friend Lazarus. And Jesus was going to do something about it. Jesus said, uh, uh, he, they brought him to a cave with a stone rolled across the entrance, and Jesus said, roll the stone aside. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he has been dead for four days. Now that's not in there for no reason. That's an important element in the story. She goes on to say, the smell will be terrible. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. Then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. And then he said, you always hear me. But I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe that you sent me. Then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out! Wow. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave cloths, his face wrapped in a head cloth. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. Many of the people who were with Mary believed in Jesus when they saw this happen. But some evil-hearted people, some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the leading priests and Pharisees called the high council together. What are we going to do, they asked each other. This man certainly performs many miraculous signs. If we allow him to go on like this, everyone soon will believe in him. Then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. You know what's sad? These Pharisees, these rabbis, would rather have their building than their Messiah. Wow. 
God, don't ever let that happen to us. That this building becomes something more sacred than you. And I, I love what it says next. Caiaphas, who was the high priest at the time, said, you don't know what you're talking about. Now, he said this to his own Pharisees and rabbis. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't realize that it is better for you that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. And then verse 51 says, He did not say this on his own as high priest at that time, but he was led to prophesy that Jesus would die for the entire nation. And the next verse says, Not only the entire nation, but for the whole world. Friends, Caiaphas didn't even know what he was saying. He couldn't control what he was saying. The Holy Spirit shoved those words out from him to prophesy that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the only Savior of the world. There is no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. Call me narrow-minded. Call me intolerant. I don't care what you call me. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Friends, we've looked at these four messianic miracles. No one before or since has ever performed them but Jesus and God. You know how this passage in, in Matthew ends? It says, so from this day forward, they plotted to take his life. And today we're faced with this same choice. Do we believe that Jesus is the Messiah who came to set us free? Free from our sin? Where would you describe your faith journey right now? Are you fully plugged in or are you still somewhat skeptical? playing the church Christian game, but you haven't really fully jumped in. The faith is the starting point. Without faith in God, you can't be a Christian. You know, I remember as a teen being on this journey myself. And I remember God asking me in my heart to do something to surrender an area of my life. And I said, God, oh, God, really, like, if I surrender this, I'm not, I don't know what you'll do. I, I remember what some of those areas were. I'm hesitant to tell you what they were. But I, I remember one of them was who I would marry. And I literally thought this. I thought... If I surrender this area of my life to you, God, you're going to make me marry some, and I won't, I won't tell you what I was thinking. <laughs> no, I'm serious. That's what, that's what I thought. But I didn't understand God. I didn't know that he loved me. I didn't know that he wanted the very best for me. 
And God kept at me, and finally one day I surrendered. I said, okay, God, you are God. You can do great and awesome things. I surrender that area of my life to you. Friends, we come to the communion table. Ken, would you come up with me? (laughs) We come to the communion table, and it's about surrender. Come on up. Uh, It's about Jesus surrendering his body and blood for us. And then, so that we can surrender our lives for him. A man was working in his backyard one day when his neighbor began talking to him over the fence. And he said, yeah, my wife and I went to one of those seminars yesterday, you know, where they teach you ways to, rem- to improve your memory and such. His neighbor commented, really? What was the name of the speaker? Oh. Um, It's one of those plants with a, a pretty flower and thorns. And the neighbor said, you mean a rose? Yeah, that, that was his name. <laughs> Friends, our memory is just bad, isn't it? Our memory's bad. We need things to remind us. And I believe that God, throughout the Word, put things in front of people to remind them. Piles of rocks and other things to remind them of what God had done. And now we come to the communion table. And communion is all about remembering. Remembering what Jesus did. I want to share three things that we can remember from the communion table. First of all, his focus on forgiving. Jesus' focus on forgiving. Luke 23, 34, on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. If you came to church this morning and there was something in your life that just wasn't right with you and God, in a moment we're going to take a second so that you can bow your head, close your eyes, and pray. And if God brings something to your mind that you need to confess, just take time to ask him to forgive you of that. So let's do that right now. Father, I'm so thankful of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a joy it is to celebrate communion today knowing that your forgiveness, it wasn't just a one-time shot for us, 
but you go on forgiving and forgiving us. Thank you for that. In your precious name we pray, amen. Secondly, from the communion table, we recognize his amazing grace. Acts 15, 11. We believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Doesn't say it there in specific words, but it more or less says Jesus is the only way. We are saved through his undeserved grace. God's grace has saved us. Wow. What a joy it is to celebrate today as brothers and sisters in the Lord. Thirdly, from the communion table, we see the depth of his love. John 15, 13. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. The bread and the cup represent Jesus' body and blood that was shed for us. And you know what? Jesus didn't just have the flesh on his back ripped. He didn't just shed a few drops of blood and God called it a day. But Jesus died. People say God is dead, and I want to say he was. Yeah, God did die. I don't fully understand it, but Jesus died for my sin. Praise God, he rose again. As we take the bread this morning, we think of Jesus' body that was broken for us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that your son was so willing to come to earth, so willing to give himself, so willing to suffer physically, his body ripped apart for us. God, we remember what you did for us. And we thank you for it. In your precious name, amen.